All right, so on to the the next movie here. Um, are you ready? I am. My recorder's going, and I'm awake. That was the opening music to The Curse of the Cat People, released in 1944 by RKO Pictures. RKO Radio Pictures, which I think is interesting that they put radio in there. Uh, And it was directed by a couple different folks, but the reason we're reviewing it is that uh, Robert Wise took over as the second director after Gunther von Fritsch. Not sure I pronounced that right, I apologize was fired for going over budget. And the reason we're uh, reviewing a Robert Wise film is that we're doing a uh, five-movie marathon, uh, with this one being the first, and finishing it up with uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. One more quick thing here. I found a website that lists the top 20 Robert Wise films, and this one's right in the middle at number 11, and Star Trek The Motion Picture is number 19, so... I'm not sure we're. I'm not sure we're doing this in the right order, but that's okay. <laughs> I think we we're doing by it a year. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it chronologically, right? So, he- and you're listening to classic movie reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net, and in Facebook, just search for classicmoviereviews.net. And on Apple iTunes and Apple Podcasts, you can find us. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm coming to you from rainy North Bend, which uh, figures into this review in, in, a, in an odd way. So I'll, I'll leave that there for later. And I'm Bob Johnson uh, here in Los Angeles, welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and The Curse of the Cat People. I don't think there's ever been a film with a title for the film that was so different than the film itself. That in itself is a story. If you saw that title, you'd think it was something different. Well, especially if you think that this is a real true sequel to The Cat People, which was a really huge hit for RKO. Oh, this was a hit, but of all the Val Luton films... I read this was the least financially successful, even though it was successful, of all of them. And I think maybe people were reading reviews that maybe they decided not to go see it because it didn't fit what the title was. I I learned that RKO had an agreement with uh, Val Luton that the studio would would pick the title of the films, and then he would make the film to fit the title. Yeah, I read that's that too. An odd way to do it, in my mind. <clears throat> but on, I think that's a, I think that was a, com- a more common way of making movies back in the day, though. Um, they'd have an idea of, of something for a cool title, and then they'd figure out a movie that would go with well, it. <laughs> well, you know, I also uh, watched uh, a DVD on this with a commentary, and the commentator indicated that uh, Val Luton wanted to call it Amy and Her Friend. And the studio said, no, we're going mm-hmm. with the Curse of the Cat People. So Val Luton, after he, 
agreed to that, I decided he'd make a film that was much more personal to his own life. And I found that it's a, it's a beautiful film, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, because of what well, he did. Well, and Val Luton was the producer on this one, right? Yes, yeah. But I also read that he was a pretty hands-on producer, so in some ways he might even be like a third director of the film. I read the same thing. I, I really, well, I really enjoy his films. And I mentioned before we started the podcast, I have the Val Luton collection, including the uh, documentary that Martin Scorsese did in 2007. But I can't find them. I, when I moved from Seattle to Los Angeles, I must have put them someplace where I wouldn't forget them. And then yeah, I've succeeded in forgetting where they are. I'm going to keep looking, though, because I have, I have like, Bedlam, The Leopard Man, The Cat People, The Ghost Ship. He made a lot of great films. And so did Robert Wise. Oh. I mean, he was oh. a working director for 50 years, I think, or at least five decades. He made so many films, it's hard to keep a list that would indicate the best ones. Even when we selected the five that we're going to do, we've already um, reviewed two or three others of his. The Andromeda Strain, The Haunting. Exactly. Yep. So those two are on the top 20 list. Um, so yeah, so we're going to so we're gonna review Curse of the Cat People, and then The Day the Earth Stood Still, and then Run Silent, Run Deep, and then West Side Story, and then the last one is Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is going to be a double feature with Wrath of Khan. And I think that'll be an interesting contrast to two very different styles of making a sci-fi movie in the Star Trek universe. Well, back to the Curse of the Cat People, a little bit of background. Val Luton was really the uh, the leader of making low-budget successful films, which many people in my reading indicated that those films kept RKO in business for uh, quite a while because they'd lost a lot of money on uh, Citizen Kane and, and uh, the Magnificent Ambersons and some others. I think I've already mentioned some of them, but he made a lot of these films. The first director of uh, The Cat People was Jacques Tourneau, who went on to be a really, really well-regarded director. One of the films that he did that I really enjoy is Out of the Past from 1947. We'll have to add that to our review list. Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. Uh, it's really great film noir. Mm, cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Everything goes wrong <laughs> in that film. <laughs> so, so film no, So it is a film. Yeah, noir it is movie. film noir, definitely. But Robert Weiss, yeah, I just, just you can't say enough good things. I think he did forty-five films. Do you want to talk a little bit about the cast? I've got a little bit of information on that. Yeah, let's see. We got Simone Simone uh, as the ghost of Arena, and then Kent Smith plays Ollie Reed as the dad. And Jane Randolph plays the mom, Alice Reed. And then Ann Carter plays the daughter, Amy Reed. And then there's a few supporting characters. I think the most important ones are um, the Farrens. Julia Dean plays uh, Miss, Mrs. Farron. And Elizabeth Russell plays a, a Barbara Farron. I was, uh, yeah. And then uh, you can't forget Sir Lancelot. Right, Sir Lancelot, right. I love that He name. was excellent in this, and he had quite a career <laughs> in film. Yeah, he played Edward, the sort of the butler slash houseman. I'm not sure he he was always there with the family. Well, here's a here's a, some brief background on those people. Simone lived to be 94, 
93 or 94. There's some disagreement on that. Uh, most of her films were made uh, in France, and uh, she was she loved the cat people. She was in that, uh, obviously. She wasn't as fond as this uh, of, of this movie as she was the cat people, I think because the, part of what they did was they used her name as a draw, and and I thought her part yeah. in this movie was was key to the whole thing, but she felt like she got kind of a short shrift in, in involvement. Kent Smith, he made about 60 films and was in TV. This may be one that you've not seen in 1967, 1968. He was in The Invaders, which was a, a television drama on ABC. Really a good, a good two-year series on the possible invasion of our world from out, outside of the world. Oh, man, I'll have to check With that out. With Roy Thinnes as, as the star. And uh, Kent Smith played Dr. Uh, Mr. Edward Scoville, who comes to believe Roy Thinnes' tale that uh, we are being invaded. Well, the thing about him too is he 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 looked he looked like a leading man. He does, doesn't um, he? I thought he I thought he looked like somebody that could play Flash Gordon or Superman. He had the looks for a for an A list star, and he came close, uh, but never quite connected. He was in. Uh, the Spiral Staircase, 1946. The Fountainhead, 1949. But another one that you'll like, he was in the original Night Stalker TV movie with Darren McGavin. <laughs> he played the oh. DA, <laughs> Tom Payne. So, Interesting. Uh, I, I like that show. I guess we should mention, too, that Robert Weiss won two Academy Awards as director for West Side Story and uh, then again for Sound of Music. And then we come to the surprise of the of the podcast, I think, Amy Carter, who was just a centerpiece for this film at a six year old age. Yeah, Ann Car Ann, Ann Carter plays Amy. I'm Reed. sorry, Ann, yeah, Ann Carter. I, I'm getting too many too many Amys here. Well, Ann Carter went on to have other films, but she left the industry in the fifties. Long story short. She lived to be 77 and died in 2014. And my reading was that she lived and died in North Bend, Washington. Yeah, that's so cool. And I thought maybe maybe we saw her around town. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, there's not it's not that big of a town, and and certainly uh, that's possible. And then another obscure yeah. fact about Ann Carter: her father was a lifelong. Uh, executive at the Dodge Motor Corporation, which it was a part of Chrysler, and he was instrumental in getting Dodge uh, cars to sponsor the Lawrence Welk Show. This is my <laughs> week of connecting movies to television, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You really did do your yeah, research. Yeah, I've got to tone that back. I've, but, yeah, they were the sponsor of, I think, Lawrence Welk for most of its run. So that's... Uh, that's kind of a highlight thing. Well, and it, and it, what, what is what is interesting about this movie to me is that it does, it can play as a sequel to the Cat People. It's just, it's just not really the same kind of movie as the Cat People. It's got the same actors and characters, and it does call back to that film in the way that Irina is talked about, and this idea that maybe. The family's cursed. Mommy, who 
Who's this? Amy, where did you get this? Right in here. Isn't she pretty? She was very pretty. What's her name? Irena. Irena. Darling, look, the sun's shining. Why don't you run out and play? All right, Mommy. Ollie. Yeah? Don't you think we ought to get rid of this? Where'd you get it? Amy found it in that drawer. Perhaps you'd better go through the whole bunch. There may be others of Irene in there. I hope we never have to tell Amy about her. Well, there's no need to that I can see. But really, it could totally stand alone, too. You could watch this and have never seen the cat people and never be any the wiser that this other movie exists. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. And I also think that it has a huge reflection of Robert Wise's uh, direction because when I was watching it, I think I've seen it now three or four times, it reminded me of, of how he constructed The Haunting. The use of black and white, the cinematography, the the tones, the, the shades of, of black and gray. And and uh, I guess the, the best way for me to describe it is just a beautifully done and and handsomely crafted film. And to get to get the 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 uh, performance out of the little girl who was six years old is just amazing to me. Oh, she's she's so totally believable as that as that little girl, isn't oh, she? And, yeah, and and I just I I felt so much sympathy for her because she was so isolated in her world. Yeah, I thought I thought the word that kept coming to mind for me was melancholy. There's just it just felt like there's a lot of melancholy in the movie of of like as an adult thinking back to being a small child and and how you have those times when you feel so so alone and. And then as, a, as an adult thinking about being a parent and like worrying ab about your kids and are they okay and wanting to make sure you're doing the right thing but not being sure if, if, if you are. And then as an adult thinking about your aging parents and kind of dealing with uh, what comes with, with getting older and, and sort of deterioration of mental faculties and and it just kind of covers that whole spectrum of from childhood to to old age. Oh, it, it, totally, and and it carries over into the characters of Julia Farron and Barbara Farron, and and the uh, the nature of their relationship, where the elderly Julia doesn't doesn't think that Barbara is even her daughter. A liar, an imposter, your own daughter. You called me that, yet you're sweet and kind to the little girl, a stranger. Look at me. I'm your daughter. My daughter, Barbara, died when she was six. That was long ago. You're only the woman who takes care of me. Look at me. You are an imposter. It's, that's that's so sad. I mean, yeah, but think of, yeah, that's so sad, and I think it's just so common with like dementia yeah. and uh, Alzheimer's and and the the things that Barbara was going through, kind of helping to take care of her mom, and every day being reminded that her mom thinks that she's 
this impersonator of her daughter and that that she had died when she was six and then here comes amy reed uh this little six-year-old girl that looks probably a lot like barbara did as a child and and then the way that julia farron the mom just lights up when when she sees amy and i think that must have been so hard for for barbara to deal with and she says at one point in the film I hate the storm, I hate it. I don't hate the storm. It blows beyond me. It was on a night like this that Barbara died. But I'm Barbara. I didn't die. Don't you understand? My Barbara was killed. No, no, you were out of your mind. You didn't know anybody. You didn't remember anything. Look at me. Look in my eyes, Mother. Say that I'm Barbara. No, it's not true. Everything you say is a lie. You're a poor, lost woman. You're not my Barbara. You're always worse when that little girl's been here. If that child comes here again, I'll kill her. Yes, I'll kill her. Well, some of the backstory that I that I watched on one of the one of the uh, things I watched about the movie is apparently apparently Julia Farron had had some kind of an accident. I think it was an auto accident. I can't remember right now, but it impaired her memory, and she honestly didn't think that Barbara was her child. And then I also learned in this backstory that this film has been used as a teaching tool. In, in analysis, counseling, and psychology because of the way it's constructed, both around the little girl and her parents, her isolation, and then about the uh, mother-daughter. And I thought, no, you could really could wow. be. I, there's a lot more to this film than, than I thought there would be in the first couple of times I watched it. I think I was taken in by it this time far more than I ever had been before. I was too, actually, and I think it might be because we've been watching so many movies together <laughs> yes. that it's got so many layers, and it, it's just so genuine to me, the way that the characters are portrayed and so the struggles that they're having. Well, that I made a, again, I made another list here of uh, Amy and, and her imagination and how she lived her life in that realm and the beauty of that backyard. And you know when mm-hmm. when she had her birthday and no one showed up, and they couldn't figure out why that was so. And and uh, Edward the uh, butler said that. What is it, Ollie? Well, something's haywire. What do you mean? Neither the Millers nor the Irvings received invitations. But they must have. Amy and I made them out together. You mailed them, didn't you, Edward? Well, ma'am, the truth is, I gave them to Amy herself to post. Well, Amy mailed them. She pleaded so to do it. Amy, you remember the party invitations Edward gave you to mail? Yes, Daddy. Did you mail them? Yes, I did. Where did you mail them? I'll show you. Amy, not that old tree. Yes, Daddy. But I told you about that so long ago. You couldn't have been more than three when I told you that tree was a magic mailbox. I didn't forget. But Amy, that wasn't real. That was just a story. 
That tree's no mailbox. Well, there they are. Look, Amy. Mother and Daddy keep telling you over and over again, but you go right on dreaming. And then, things like this happen. If the invitations didn't go, then that means nobody will come, doesn't it? There won't be any party. <laughs> oh, yes. There is going to be a party. We'll have one ourselves. You and I and Mother and Edward. Huh? And apparently that was actually taken from Val Luton's childhood, that he did the same thing. He thought that was where they should go and that they would be magically transported to wherever they needed to end up. It's just... Yeah, I also... Uh, yeah, I thought that was so heartbreaking. Um, she, I thought the way that the parents handled that, though, was pretty well done. They said, well, we can still have a party. We'll just have a party ourselves. And then they cut to a scene with Edward bringing in this ginormous cake. Yeah, <laughs> a cake for 20. That was enough cake to feed the whole neighborhood. Yeah. It was so sad, though, when Amy went out to the front gate to look for where the, where's everybody at? And she didn't connect where she put the things and the result. And then she decides from her dad, dad's encouragement to go, you know, talk to her friends and tell them what happened. And they, she finds her friends playing a game on the sidewalk and her friends kind of whisper something to each other as Amy's coming up. And then they just completely and totally shun her and they just run yeah. off. And I thought, man, that's just, that's so spot on i mean and it's it's it kind of just demonstrates how mean kids can be to one another and it's it's not i'm not saying that those girls were intentionally being like evil or anything like that it's just the way kids are they don't know they don't necessarily think about how their actions are going to impact other kids i was also thinking as i watched it that the studio executives in val luton must have been ecstatic when they saw the end product and and what Robert Weiss has done to pull it together because they had gone way over budget and uh, the time that was allotted was much more because the first director had not had not been able to pull it off and here comes Weiss he had to use a lot of the stuff that had been done by the other guy but it's seamless and they must have thought boy have we got a a future director here that just opened the door for his uh, whole life Amazing. Oh yeah, well and I and they reused some of the sets from the Magnificent Ambersons, <laughs> yes, yes. I believe. They, they yeah. were very cost conscious. <laughs> Every one of the Val Luton films had to have a budget of a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less. And then they it was a cash flow for the studio. Well, when I when I watch it now I think it looks a lot more expensive than it that. It does. I think that they did an amazing job of pulling off the set design and the, the way that they kind of make the backyard this magical place and especially in that snowstorm and and when uh Irina makes this magical kind of like sparkly thing in the backyard appear Merry Christmas Amy Merry Christmas Irina I brought you a present Oh thank you Amy You can open it now I guess Lois Huggins says that's proper Oh, 
beautiful. It reminded me of you, so I bought it. It cost me more than all the others. I shall wear it on my cape. Oh, that is more beautiful than I ever imagined it. I wish I could show you to Mommy and Daddy. I wish you could enjoy Christmas with us. You and I shall enjoy Christmas together. Shall I show you my Christmas gift to you? Oh, please. Look. That was so well done, and and I never felt like it was a low budget movie uh, when I was watching it. No, I I never have either. There are a couple of the ones that he did later that are you could tell they were they were not on a big budget, but this one goes far beyond that. And the use of the shadows during the film, when she's when Amy is asleep and having that awful dream, and the shadow that appears in the room, it makes you think, you know, what's going on. And that reminded me of The Haunting, because you're never really sure in that what exactly is going on. That scene, that scene right before that one, when Amy goes over to the Farron's house, and then Julia Farron, the mother, tells the story about Sleepy Hollow. Oh my goodness, yes. Really reminded me of a scene from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where the uh, the aging actress is going to do that show for the guy that was hired to kind of come in and help take care yes. of her. Oh my. And, and it was just this kind of like frightening in that, in that respect. And the way that the lighting was done in that little scene was great too. Again, like the use of shadows was great. And uh, even the setting for the film, Sleepy Hollow and all is again, uh, I guess a reference to Val Luton's childhood because he grew up in that part of New York. So, mm-hmm. so Irina, we haven't really talked too much about Irina. In the first film, The Cat People, uh, Irina dies. And in this film, it's at least halfway through the film before we even see her when she appears to Amy. And uh, and I noticed that we don't actually see her until Amy sees the pictures of Irina mm-hmm. and learns Irina's name. And then... She goes in the backyard the next time and, and calls her name, and then she appears. So I was wondering if the friend, Amy's friend, was really Irina up until that point, or if, if she became Irina after that point. I think she became Irina after that point because Amy had had given a, a name and, a, and had seen the face and realized that this would be her friend. Again, her imagination was, yeah. was amazing, as children's imaginations are. They live in, in a world of yeah. of wonder in a lot of ways, or terror, depending on their circumstances. And Irina, uh, 
she looks kind of like an angel the way they dressed her in that gown when she appears to me and the way they have the lighting kind of backlit on her and she kind of glows yeah it's amazing and she's a beautiful woman to begin with i think she's a Uh, real uh, important part of amy's life in the sense of providing a sense of stability um, and and comfort and really kind of saves her life at the end there oh, when at at back at the uh, the uh, Farron's home oh yeah yes. so so she so kind of the way that the plot works out is that the dad is really a, kind of dead set against Amy having this imaginative life and wants her to be more realistic and stop pretending and having these imaginary friends and it kind of all comes to a head near the end when uh, Amy won't renounce Irina as her friend. And, and there's that great scene in the backyard where the dad takes her out on the porch and says, "Now look back there and tell me that you don't that you don't see Irina. And if you tell me that you do see Irina, I'm going to punish you." Yeah. And she refuses. She refuses to renounce Irina. And I thought it was interesting that the dad in that scene won't look into the backyard. He won't look. I don't know if it's that he's afraid to look or he just just doesn't believe. And so he, he there's no reason for him to look. But he definitely doesn't look into the backyard. I think he was afraid to look. He had been saving these photographs of Irene, his first wife. And I think on a, on a certain level, he was still obsessed and caught in that first marriage and the memory of that. And I think so. I think he would have been afraid that he was going to see her. I totally agree. I'm glad that that's kind of how you picked it up too, because I think he was still uh, uh, kind of obsessed with her as well. Um, and and the his current wife, uh, played by Jane Randolph, wants him to get rid of all these old photos, and he and he sort of half-heartedly does, but I think he saves one, and that's the one of him and mm-hmm. Irina with the wind kind of blowing through their hair. I'm looking at that right now on my computer. That that yeah. picture. And and so Amy gets a spanking, and there's this interesting conversation about how a spanking is a f- the first spanking is an important event, yes. <laughs> an important important event. And the 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 uh, teacher, Miss Callahan, is there, and is sort of encouraging the dad to. Knowing she's encouraging the mom not to interfere with the dad in the spanking. So there's a lot of psychology that's coming into play about what's the right way to raise yeah. children in this movie. At the same time, it sort of reflects what the 1940s view of that was, in terms of the mm-hmm. spanking and how it might have been changed and how it might have been yeah. changing at the time too. Uh, so then Amy Amy gets upset after the spanking and runs off and into this really terrible snowstorm. And there's another really wonderful cinematic scene there where she's approaching the oh, bridge. Yes. And then you start hearing hoof, hoof yes. beats. Sounds like the headless horseman is coming. That was really it, cool. It, it, it was it was so perfectly done, and then 
What comes by? An old car with a chain on the tires. And the chain was loose making that noise. That was a real, that was a grabber for sure. And she looks, you know, she just, she's running around at, at six years old and she looks so vulnerable and alone. It's just heart-wrenching to see her and she's so beautiful and and lost in the yeah. snowstorm and she's and i and uh the parents call the state police or maybe the teacher does but one of them does and so now they're out searching for amy and amy somehow finds her way to the farron's house and the mom opens the door and lets her in and then she says i need to hide you i need to hide you because i think she knew that the this other person in the house who's her daughter was really upset about having Amy over and she tries to hide her upstairs but she can't make it up the stairs and she ends up dying on on the stairs there and Barbara walks in and says even my mother's last moment you've stolen from me come here daddy come here And that look in her eyes, I thought, boy, the first time I watched this, I thought, is this movie going to end with Amy being killed? I know. <laughs> that was really... <laughs> and, and, and there was a, another ending that Val Luton had put together where... Uh, I forget exactly the detail of it, but it doesn't have the beauty of this one where Irina comes back to save Amy by kind of taking over Barbara's body. Uh, I thought that uh, that ending was perfect, and I think I think with just a little bit of a twist on how you watch the film, you could almost say that maybe Irina is a ghost, and maybe Irina is visiting Amy, and maybe Irina did save her at the end, like that maybe mm-hmm. was, because because you can also watch the Cat People one of two ways. You can watch it as a movie about a woman who's got a lot of mental health issues, or you can watch it about a movie about a woman who can turn into who, who a cat. Shape, shape shift, is that what they call it? Shape shift? Yeah, shape shift. And, and it, I think if you watch it kind of more of a magical way, then you could watch this movie in a more magical way where Irina actually does come back because she's this magical being and saves her. And I love, I love movies like this that have different ways you can watch it depending on how you want to view it. And I think The Omen was that way as well, where you could watch it as uh, Damien is really the devil incarnate, or he's just a kid who has some crazy parents, you know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> or both. Or both. Well, this movie has... Uh, I, I, I just went, I wanted to quote about a couple of different uh, reviews. One reviewer said that, in, and I quote, the poetry, the, the film shows the poetry and the danger of childhood. Another one, and this was, uh, this was in 2010, the Moving Arts Film Journal ranked this film as the 35th greatest film of all time. Wow, really? I'm not familiar with the Moving Arts Film Journal. And then uh, one last one, 
Bosley Carruther of the New York Times, and I quote, called, uh, called it, and I quote, a rare departure from the ordinary run of horror films, which emerges, emerges as an oddly touching study of the working of a sensitive child's mind. So again, you could see it different ways. Some critics didn't like mm. it. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't quote them because they didn't agree with my assessment. <laughs> That's editorial privilege. I think a, a lot of it might have to do with expectations. If you're thinking this is going to be a direct sequel to the Cat People, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How about our rating? I would give it. I think it's a little bit better than halfway between a five. I think I'm going to give it an eight. I started at a ten, but I I <laughs> I guess I'd go with a nine. It's it's just excellent. I I would recommend it, and and I think someone who hasn't seen it would say, "What? You want me to watch the Curse of the Cat People?" <laughs> I think that's what happened to its box office. I think so too. Anyway, wonderful. I think so film. too, and I think. I think if you just disregard the name of the movie, then go in with an open mind. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I wondered if the executives at RKO had second thoughts when they uh, refused to use Val Luton's recommendation for the title being Amy and her friend. I don't know if that would have worked either. I don't know. I don't know. I think that name is so generic. I kind of like the idea that it could be connected to the the cat people movie because it lets you see it as a it lets you look at it in a couple different ways depending on if how connected you want to make it yeah that's true that's true and that uh, that other title that he had isn't a grabber either i got i got i got a quick thing here i want to read the biography for sir lancelot oh yes they they talked about him in the backstory <clears throat> so he was born lancelot victor edward pinard to well-to-do Anglophile parents in Trinidad. Oddly, though, it wasn't until schooling took him to New York City in 1940 that he discovered a love of calypso music in a profession where successful artists commonly took names like King Radio or Lord Invader. It was natural for someone named Lancelot to choose the stage name Sir Lancelot, and with that name he wrote and performed calypso, uh, and with some acting on the side for movies, live theater, and radio uh, beginning in the 1940s, and that's by Ken Yalston on IMDb. But I, I love that he just owned that, you yeah. know, Sir Lancelot. Well, you know, the film was made in 1943, released in March of 1944, and I, I attribute uh, the, the treatment of his character, Sir Lancelot's character, as being kind of a, a helpful, you know, a, a really good character to the treatment by Robert Weiss of that of that background because so many films in the 40s you know the the uh diversity of actors and storylines was so limited or if it showed up at all it was usually not in a good way i thought his character was uh, treated really well by the director i thought he i thought he was given some good lines and i think he was given some decent uh character development and he was really treated almost like part yeah. of the family, which I liked. There's a uh, film. Uh, there's so. a film piece. Um, remember when the carolers come over, and uh-huh. uh, Mr. Reed opens that that split door, and he and 
His wife and Amy are looking out at the carolers, and right there with them in the frame is Sir Lancelot, and they're all smiling. Yep, yep. That's Robert Weiss. And, and he, that's, that's his touch. And he gets a great look on his face, too, once the carolers come in. And I think he really lo- like really likes his job yeah. because he's like going to go off. He's going to go off to the kitchen and prepare some cocoa or something for everybody. And he seems quite pleased that he gets to do that. So it's not like it's it's not that he's there and it's it's a burden for him. I think he actually enjoys this sort of environment and atmosphere. The other. Uh, no kidding. He's a real person, not a not a caricature. Right. Then exactly. the other thing that uh, I should have picked up on earlier, and I forgot, the home that the Ferrans live in, that really dilapidated old house, that was mm-hmm. not on the studio lot. That was an actual home somewhere in in Los Angeles that they filmed the outside exteriors for. If I lived in na- a neighborhood with that home, I would never go near it. It it looked wow. I thought that was a miniature looked, or something. That was a that real was place. Real? Wow, and a scary one at that. Spooky. I'm sure it's not there anymore. It looked like it was going to fall <laughs> fall down seventy years ago. It's probably been replaced by an apartment building or <laughs> yeah, condos right. or something. So we we think it's a really good film, and and uh, we continue our uh, Robert Weiss festival, right? Yes. Next time it's. One that I think we've both been oh. waiting to review for quite a while. The Day the Earth Stood Still. Again, another yeah. magical treatment by Mr. Weiss. Uh, from 1951. I'm looking forward to it. It's got another great child actor portrayal in it yes. as well. And a bigger budget. Yeah, for sure. And a sure. great suit that the uh, space robot is in. Oh, my God. <laughs> one of the best robots. One of the best film robots yes. ever. All right. Well... Well, that was The Curse of the Cat People, and coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. Amy, from now on, you and I are going to be friends. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in you. You like that, won't you? Yes, Daddy. Is your friend in the garden? Can you see Irena now? Yes, I can see her. I see her too, darling. That was uh, the curse of the. Cat. I guess it's just curse of the cat people. Uh, and no, it's, it? it's the, the cur- It's the curse of the cat people. Okay, it's uh, so that was the curse of the cat people. And coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt Johnson and Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles, welcoming everybody to our podcast and hoping you have a, a great week. And maybe I could say this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Let me do mine again. <laughs>